This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room, the official Law & Order SVU podcast. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and this is a special bonus episode edition. And on the program, we have a Writer's Room Roundtable with Warren Light, Julie Martin, Dennis Hamill, and Monet Hurst-Mendoza. And we look back at season 21 and we look ahead to season 22. This is all happening right here on The Squad Room, which as always is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. I'm in the squad room with Warren Light, Julie Martin, Dennis Hamill, and Monet Hurst-Mendoza, a writer's roundtable. And thank you all for coming on. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. Yeah. Glad to be back. All right. And I just kind of wanted to go maybe around and just talk about season 21, just something that you felt really good about that was successful or, you know, an achievement or just personally pleasing as a writer, just anything that happened this season that really resonated with you. Well, okay. I think one of the things I'm happiest about would be watching Carisi grow from a green assistant DA. Every time we saw him, he was a little more assured, a little stronger in his role. He had to battle a boss who wasn't always overtly sympathetic. It was nice to see him grow into the suit and become, I think, by the end of the season, he's a real DA. And I liked watching his character's growth. I was happy to introduce Kat to our universe, and I think to make Benson a captain, a position that she owns. Were you nervous about the transition with Carisi making such a big change? I wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Were others? (laughs) There were conversations about it internally. It was a big shift. I didn't want to bring in a new DA because we had just lost Stone, and I didn't want to introduce a new character. And I thought, we gave this guy a law degree for a reason, or he went to law school for a reason, and let's try it out. It had been a long time without anybody new coming into the squad room. It had been the same group of people. I think the actors were so comfortable with each other. They were not given to showing scenes of conflict as organically as I might have wanted them to. I thought, let's shake it up. This house needs to have the windows open and the air pushed through. But there were questions, not necessarily in the writer's room, but on the West Coast about, will it be believable that this Staten Island cop is a DA? I think within a couple of episodes, those questions went away. You know, it was the same challenge for Carisi as it was for Peter Scanavino. It was a pretty big move within the SVU framework. He was nervous about it. The character was nervous about being a DA, and it gave us something to play. I like that. Okay. Uh, Julie? Well, I'm I'm going to piggyback on that a bit and flip it over. I mean, what was most interesting to me about I uh, not that I didn't love seeing Creasy growth. I loved that too, but it was really challenging and fun and something we hadn't done before to see people that were sort of that felt left behind. It's like how did the had the squad room were happy for him? They were proud of him, but there was a lot of negative emotion which we hadn't had a lot of opportunity to explore interpersonally, uh, you know, feelings of you left us and <laughs> you left us in the lurch and how are we going to do this without you? And I found that was very interesting. Everyone had sort of having to reevaluate their relationships with Carisi and with each other. I mean, because it's really a family, the squad. I mean, it's co-workers, but in the fantasy, the TV, you know, slightly not reality is that it's the NYPD, but it's four to six people that you really interact with every day. And how does that dynamic change when somebody leaves or does something different? It's not like he left, he was there, but in a completely different capacity. 
I think for Benson, it was interesting to have to deal with someone who she's been mentoring really his whole career and all of a sudden realize, well, maybe he's outgrowing me or growing past me or he's not someone that I necessarily have the authority to tell what to do anymore. Uh, and how, how do I figure that out? And Rollins, especially, that was interesting to me that she felt that she really lost a partner and she, she lost a friend and she lost someone that she knew mostly day in and day out that she was on the same side as. And now all of a sudden that, that, that dynamic flipped and she wasn't always on the same side. All right. And Dennis? Dennis, this is your first year, so you probably had a lot of new things happen. Yeah, well, actually, they're talking about how this squad room was like a family and needed to be shaken up a bit. And coming into 40 years in journalism and coming into a TV writing job in this writer's room was a kind of odd transition. I didn't know what to exactly expect. I had done some screenwriting before, but I'd never been part of a writer's room. And I was just amazed that how much of a family kind of feeling it was. I mean, the camaraderie has been unbelievable, people rooting for each other. And I'll say stuff about Warren and Julie that I say behind their back. They've been terrific bosses and teachers. They take your idea from a seed and and help you grow it into a story and then refine it into a script. And there's absolutely no problem with ego because you're trying to make the best script you can for to fit characters that already have passed the test of time. This is a series that's lasted longer than any other one in history. So you know that you're walking into an historic season two, which gives you, makes you a little more nervous. You don't want to be the one that kills it. In fact, I think that they led us through such a powerful season that it got us renewed for three more, which is unbelievable. And I think there's a good reason for that. And a lot of it is that the season was so strong and the leadership was clearly what helped do that. I think every writer will say that working with Warren and Julie is not just uh, fun. They're demanding and they, they want you to be at the top of your game, but everything that they do with you only improves it. And I learned a lot, I think, in the first season. And I, I look back at the whole season and I'm really proud of it. I think it's a great narrative. And I've been a writer all my life. I can look at something and tell you whether it's good or bad in this you know, pretty easily and be objective about it. And uh, I think this was a really strong season of police drama. I thought it was great. And that starts at the top. But I, I couldn't have been happier with my first year here, I have to say. All right. And Monet, this is your also your first year, right? Yes. So I'm a longtime fan of the show. I think a lot of people know this already. Now, I've heard that you know more about the show than anyone. Is that that's, correct? I feel like that's an exaggeration. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> watching the show every week as just like a fan and then being a writer on a show that I love so much and have seen gone through so many changes. I'm just so incredibly grateful to Warren and to Julie for believing in me and bringing me into this room. And just yes, and to everything that's already been said. I think the changes that the characters have been going through are pretty spectacular and satisfying to see as a viewer and then to be part of, you know, helping enact those changes. It feels like such a privilege. I think what I'm particularly proud of in this season is just how we've sort of zoomed in on these specific pockets of life in New York City, specific communities that maybe don't normally get a larger platform. You know, we really dig in and spend time in the world, whether that's, you know, the uh, African-American community that's on the down low or Chinatown. 
it's very exciting to me that these communities are getting, you know, some screen time. And that's all thanks to Warren and Julie, you know, they really encourage showing the diversity of New York City. And as a person of color who's, you know, on a writing staff, it's just so exciting um, to get behind that. And Warren, the new characters, which everybody's kind of talking about, Kat and Damore, Hadid, just several, were you able to accomplish what you wanted to this season with them? Did any of their stories get cut short or did you get enough time with everyone that was new? I tell you, I was really glad that we got Damore's episode in, Christian Garland's episode in the church, because I thought that showed a a lot about who he is. And uh, I thought just gave a really powerful performance. We had plans to see a little bit more about Kat in the last few. It's interesting. One of the things we were going to write to was actually the Olivia Carisi relationship. How hard it is when you've been the boss of somebody to have them, essentially the DA tells the cops what to do, but that's pretty hard for Olivia to accept since she brought Carisi into this world. And so we were going to write to that. And that's something I guess we'll see early next season if we're lucky. But that's uh, one of the emotional or or the um, runners we were going to do toward the end. We had one more Garland episode in the bank. We had talked about bringing Hadid back. But I think the audience got a taste of Hadid and the, uh, again, how complicated her, the pressures on her are in the pharmaceutical episode. We got to see Damore. We've seen Kat, I thought, in the boxing episode that Monet co-wrote, which was another episode that took us into another interesting community. You know, the first year when you bring in new characters, one of the things I learned when I first brought Amaro and Rollins in is the audience has to get invested in the character before you start shoving that character's backstory down their throats. They have to start to wonder about the character, like the character, dislike the character before you start giving them too much personal story time. I mean, you know, Finn and Carisi got, I think, a little short change this year on personal story, what's going on in their lives. Finn and Carisi, we don't know too much about their home lives. We gave Finn that interesting relationship with Andre, I think tells us a lot about Finn as a child. I think that's an interesting beat for him and he played it really well. I think that as far as the new characters go, we saw about as much of them as their premier seasons needed to see. Kat, we're obviously getting to know better than the two bosses, because the bosses are not uh, in every episode. Julie and I had plotted out a pretty nasty fight scene that uh, a freelancer, Brian Galyaboff, was working on between Carisi and Olivia, and that's on pause, as Governor Cuomo says now. Is that something like you add to Brian's story? Is that how that works, kind of? Well, this is an episode that wasn't shot, that we hope will be shot. He came in with a pretty formed story. A lot of times we'll hear it and we'll think, we've been wanting to explore the simmering tension between Olivia and Carisi. This is the episode to do that. Somebody comes in with, you know, I want to do an episode about a woman boxer. I want to do an episode about a guy in jail for a crime he didn't commit. And then we try to think about what are the themes of that story and is there any way they might resonate with a personal story or a backstory or an interpersonal story with our, our main characters. It's not really a B story most of the time, but it's a runner. We like those beats where the squad gets together and, and mold, chews over the crime or on the street at a coffee cart. I think that shows us what our guys are thinking sometimes. And we love writing the interpersonal dynamics of it so that it's not just pure 45 scenes of procedure every time out. And Julie, you were talking about Carisi and Rollins, their journey in season 21. What do you think of where you left them at the end of the season? And what do you think that indicates moving forward? Or does it indicate anything? 
I think that through this season, they've sort of struggled with what do they mean to each other and what is their relationship? And there have been moments of, is it more than just friendship? I mean, the part of it we haven't explored as much as I would like to is because Carisi's now been settling into being a DA and, our, and Brian's episode that may have been that too. Are there moments where I miss being a, just a cop? You know, how has this decision affected how effective I feel I can be in my job? Just how happy I am generally day to day in what I'm doing? You know, I think we're struggling with what do we mean to each other and how do we navigate the transition in our relationship now? And how do we learn to rely on each other in a different way? Because they relied on each other, you know, very much day to day. And do you have clear ideas on where it could go? I mean, you don't have to tell what they are, but do you guys know where that's headed? Not necessarily. We have a lot of different ideas. Um, <laughs> but I mean, also, I'd love to explore more Carisi's relationship with other DAs, with defense attorneys, and how, you know, sort of the nature, he's a regular. So obviously, a, a lot of his scenes are intersecting with our other regulars. So it's like, how do we branch out a little bit and see how is he navigate? We did a little bit with Hadid, you know, and how he navigates the completely different set of politics uh, at the DA's office is for him and is he happy and is he you know the conflicts that he has and is there someone else that he can interact with in the da's office and warren you said something that simon that you were going to address what happened with simon more thoroughly but that was yeah for, for this season our, our, well we thought the finale was going to be um we had heard distant thunder about chris maloney coming back in the fall and we were going to lay a little groundwork for that and we were going to see Kathy Stabler come back very upset. Her son has been rolled by a, a team of ne'er-do-wells and may have been drugged. And we're going to revisit Simon's seeming overdose. And we were going to get to know the stresses on the Stabler family since uh, what had happened to the Stabler family after Elliot both left SVU and apparently left them. And we were just going to lay some groundwork down in anticipation of Elliot's return in his, of course, with his own series. But we had the sense that the first episode of next year for SVU was going to bring Elliot back. So we were going to foreshadow that and kind of explain a little bit more of what happened to Simon. Yeah. It wasn't just a blip on the radar of the season of Simon shows up and then he's dead. But So obviously now you have to rethink this Stabler plan, right? Because you can't do all that in episode one of season 22, right? That you're talking no. about. We had written episodes 21, 22, 23, and 24. And I think 21, 22, 23, we'll see some version of 24 may be reduced to a teaser. It's very hard for me to tell NBC, Universal, and Dick, can you guys hold off on introducing Elliot? Because I had something in mind. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah. We were going to uh, also, in our minds, Rick Fox's character was going to reappear, Good. this time in a more social way. She lost Tucker. She lost her brother. It was a year of loss for her. And we just wanted Olivia to have a, a little bit of a spring. Yeah. And and she, uh, lost, she lost Gar She lost Carisi. She lost Dodd. She, sure. you know, so we, we wanted it to, the last four episodes, we're going to just have, I guess, this, a hint of spring in Olivia's life. But like so many other plans we all had, uh, that, you know, all... <laughs> so the the ch the chunk of the season that was going to bring Liv some happiness was removed, right? It's ironic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so back to Elliot, the plan is we won't meet the Stabler family again, but we will see him in the episode one of season 22. I have that right. Uh, first of all, we don't know when we're back to shooting and what shooting will be like in the post 
COVID world. It's pretty clear that Elliot will be in the SVU season opener. I think that much I know. Whether we'll get to see his family as well remains to be seen. There's a lot of moving parts. They're launching a new series as well. So it's yeah, it's not just about the SVU season opener. It's how do we help launch the new series and how much crossover will there be between Elliot and Olivia as the season goes on. It's a 10-year gap of no yeah. reference points whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> the sort of backfill in, which will be challenging. I would imagine that's being discussed, though, right? A lot, like what happened. Oh, Anthony, you have so much faith in an orderly process. <laughs> <laughs> that series is going to be in New York. Is it planned that they're going to be in the piers as well? Assuming there's people- no room at the piers for them. Oh, I mean, they can borrow okay. our courthouse if they ever go to trial. But the piers, we still have blacklist shoots on the other stage at the piers. If it were up to me, I would ask Blacklist to move. But again, probably not my call. And I don't think Blacklist would really respond well to that. But the current plan is to shoot it somewhere. I guess the stage has to be located. And probably Brooklyn. Could be the Bronx. I'm not sure where it will go. Um, it will make crossing over a little more complicated. Right. If anyone has ever had to go from Brooklyn to Manhattan or Bronx to Manhattan in the middle of the day in the last few years, it could take a half hour or three hours. It could so, take half your day. Yeah. So Dennis and Monet, I also work on This American Life. And one thing that has come up in talking to producers is they feel it's really hard to do a story that's pre-COVID. And I'm wondering, as you're writing and you're coming up with new ideas and you're thinking about next season, what your thoughts on that are? I think it's impossible now to imagine storytelling. Even Stephen King said this in one of his Twitter feeds recently. Hard to imagine how you tell stories without addressing the new world of COVID, incorporating that into it. There's going to be references to it and times when people, you know, I don't know how much people are going to embrace, shake hands or fist bump anymore. And certainly it's going to put a crimp in romances, I think. But we are going to be living in a COVID world or a post-COVID world. And it's like being after 9-11, it was pretty hard to write anything without riffing off that in some way because it affects everyday life and it's what viewers can relate to. I find that in journalism as well. I mean, how do you not assess it in this new world that we live in? Everything has changed. So I think that not every story is going to be COVID-centric, but I think there's going to be impressions of it all through it. I think that, you know, we're going to have characters are going to know people who died. They're going to have loss in their own lives. They're going to have fears of, of it happening. I can't imagine that we're going to meet people that didn't lose somebody in a nursing home or somebody who was an emergency or, or essential worker. I know in one of my episodes, episode six, we had a character who said that she lost her husband to that 9-11 cancer. So these things, and that, and that's, you know, in 2020. So you can't not have an aftermath of COVID. It's going to certainly filter through all the stories, I think. I can't imagine not doing it. Yeah. And to that point, I think it'll be about adapting the stories that we have, because I know that as writers, we're always thinking Every time we read a story, every time we see something on the news where our minds are constantly going and be like, oh, this could be a potential story idea. So even if something that we were thinking about pre-COVID can still be a valid storyline, it just might take some tweaking. But yeah, like Dennis said, I, I the world is going to be completely different after this. And I actually think it poses some exciting opportunities too, because just because COVID's happening doesn't mean 
that suddenly crimes aren't happening at all. I think New York is, last I read, was experiencing like a decrease in crime in some areas, but it hasn't like stopped completely. So it'll just be a different way of getting into potential storylines for sure. I mean, if a rape victim is going for a rape kit, they're going to also get a COVID test to find out if the person who might have infected them. You don't know. I mean, that's the way it was certainly right after the AIDS epidemic. Again, it it affected storytelling all over the place. And Warren, is that something you're thinking about a lot, or you all the time? We, you know, we were noodling on some ideas, and you know, one of the questions we were talking about: if you were assaulted three weeks ago in New York, and the detective said you need to go to the hospital to get a rape kit, you might decide not to do that. That would be a rational decision given what the hospitals are like now. Uh, right. So how you know? I don't think rapists will stop assaulting people because of COVID. But if you're a victim, you might not want to endanger your health by going to a hospital right now. So that we, you know, there's a thousand plot points that will be altered. I just think, um, especially because the show is set in New York, the experience for people in the city and the the tri-state area, New York has been hit unbelievably hard and we all have lost people and we've lost someone on the show. So there's, it's in our consciousness and it will show up purposefully and it will show up subconsciously and it will be there thematically. On a lighter note, Getting back to a a character that we were introduced to in season 21 was Hasim. And I was wondering, he was received so well. (laughs) Are there thoughts to bringing him back? Yeah, I think we even had considered bringing him back for one more in the last four. Look, it's Ariel Statchel. I'm his biggest fan. I saw him in the band's visit and I was like, who is this guy? How do I get to work with him? And one of the things I did like this year also uh, about the season was we brought in the Chinatown episode. We brought in- Joe Chen, right? So, uh, we, 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 uh, on occasion, we brought back Ian Sheehy as the tech. We brought back people who I think the squad knows and has a relationship with. We brought back judges. I think they add a little color around the edges of the show. They just remind us that it's not just four detectives in a room, that they, if you're an NYPD detective, you're in constant contact with people in other commands and other precincts. We had the bumbling detective played by Matt Bouchelle, and he came in. He was most recently bringing coffee <laughs> to his partner when they got hit by the coffee That's cake right. truck. But I, I like these characters that are, um, you know, you used to call them day players, but they're interesting guys and they bring something. Ariel, I think, is more than that. I think that's a really interesting character to bring into the squad room with increasing frequency if we could. And Julie, is there anybody you would like to bring back that we... Um... I think the squad room needs an injection of male energy. I think we need another guy in the squad room. All right. <laughs> I love all our female characters are strong and fantastic, but it feels slightly unbalanced because right now the only male detective we have is Ice. So I would love to see a male detective come in. Um, About Kat, at the tail end of the season, which wasn't the tail end of the season initially, she comes out as bisexual. It's done in a very subtle manner. How did that come about? Whoever's idea that was. We were keenly aware in terms of the LGBTQ spectrum, and we wanted to do it this year. And we didn't want to make, a, you know, I didn't want to have an explosive announcement of it or something like that. I kind of liked the way it just went by. There's a reference to it in the finale as well. And we were going to see more of that part of Cat. And I kind of like that she says it, and it's no big deal. Right. I like that it just goes by, and it's not that people didn't hear it, but it's like, oh, okay. So anyway. You know, and there's some reality to that. It's not the big reveal it would have been in 2003 yeah. when we found out Chris Note's character was gay. Yeah, it's 
incidental who she loves in the world or who she dates. I think that that's very New York and it's the 21st century. So, I mean, the nature of the show is that everyone's sex life is sort of incidental. <laughs> What was really cool about this idea was, you know, it was just an organic thing that came out and everyone in the room was very supportive. And I love that our room is really open to, you know, making sure that every person is like a full person. So I appreciate that being a new writer in a room. Great. I'm going to ask a question that someone asked me recently. What's happening with hate crimes? Oh, (laughs) Will Um, we ever see it? We are talking about launching hate crime on Peacock, which is, you know, SVU is tough to do on network TV, but we always find our way. But actually, hate crimes is an even tougher genre of crime, an even tougher world of crime to depict on TV because of network broadcasting standards, you, you know. So it's still conceptually out there and looking to happen. Yeah, it was always waiting for Peacock is the funny thing about it. (laughs) All right, last question. Kind of a fun one. What is your favorite SVU episode? It doesn't matter if you had anything to do with it. And also, if you could have any guest star come on for one episode, who would it be? Yeah, I have so many, but I guess probably in my top five episode is Dreams Deferred, of course. It's an episode that's a winner from start to finish. It's just like high energy and Patty Arquette is just the best. So yeah, I'm going to say Dreams Deferred in the top five. And if you had any actor that you could have come on the show, who would it be? I really want Audra McDonald. So if you're listening, Audra, please, please come play with us. All right. (laughs) And it's the musical episode. Okay. The SVU musical. It's often hinted at. Dennis. Yeah. um, Starting off the season, I thought the one with Ian McShane was just a great kickoff to the season. I thought his performance was great. I thought the writing was top notch. The whole thing, top to bottom, those street scenes that were reminiscent of Midnight Cowboy walking down crowded canyons of New York just set the tone for the season. Everything that I tried to write after that, I tried to say, I have to reach that bar. You know, you try to get it up there. And I think that particular episode was just so well directed and written and um who would i like to see i think warren mentioned one time that he'd love to see tom hanks why would i love to see that too and i know him a little bit he's the kind of guy that might on a whim do it he's a very interesting down-to-earth guy and a great actor i think you know he used to be a new yorker he, he started his career here you know he knows the city and who knows that would be my pick I'm throwing my pick in before I forget as we go on. But I've been bugging Warren about this since I know him. And it's Dennis Leary is the person I want to see in an SVU episode. Yeah. So I'm reminding Warren again on the air. (laughs) All right. Am I next? Julie Martin is next. (laughs) Um, I have to say my favorite, and it's it's a quiet episode. It was one of the first ones that Warren and I did together in season 13. It was called Missing Pieces. It was a story about a couple that had... At first, you think they lost their child. Next, you think they killed their child. And then you find at the end that the child died of natural causes. And it just, for me, it was an eye-opener. I loved writing it. I loved watching it. It was how different this show could be. It didn't just have to be scene after scene of procedure, procedure, procedure. It could really be digging deep into the personality of these characters and personal lives of these characters and the agonizing choices that people have to make, the random cruel situations they find themselves in. That's my favorite. It just shows how many different types of storytelling this show can do. Um, And Warren's first season was your first season as well, right? 
Yeah, season 13. Yeah. yeah. And uh, an actor you'd like to bring on? Well, I'd love to see, and forgive me, Monet, you could say, but if she hasn't been, like Helen Mirren, has she ever been on the show? I don't think so. I don't think so, but that would I be... Think- Awesome. Wow, I just finished watching Prime Suspect. Yeah, she's a, in my life, the OG female That's right. police detective. Anyway, I'd love to see her. That's a great choice. And Warren Light, you could close this out. Well, you, you mentioned favorite episode. I wasn't sure if you meant from this season or ever. From ever, when we did that episode, True Believers, which was uh, just almost documentary-like and what it's like to be victimized first by your assailant and then by the system and then in court. And it was, to me, a real departure from the last few years that had preceded it in terms of depicting just the day-to-day humiliations and mortification of going through the process of surviving. I always liked that one. I am fond of also of dreams of burning missing persons. This year, I liked when we did Midnight in Manhattan because we kind of took the chance of having three storylines. I'm happy. Yeah. I'm going to say our finale. I, I, Julie and I co-wrote that. We didn't know it would be the finale. We juggled four storylines. We had a beautiful experience working with Juan Campanella returning to direct. If we have to close out the season early, I think we're at the peak of our storytelling in that episode. So I'm fond of that. I would like Tom Hanks, but since Dennis stole that idea, um, (laughs) I'd like Edie Falco, but she's on opposite us. So I think that's unlikely. Same time. Edie and I go way back. An actress I've not worked with that I think would be a great person to bring on is Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yes. There you go. Yes. Oh, boy, would that be fun to have our guys trying to wrestle with her as either a victim or a defense attorney. I think that would be challenging. Mostly, I like bringing comedic actors in because they're fun on set and they're really dark and it usually pays off very well. All right. Well, thank you all for coming on. I miss you all very much. And we miss you too. hopefully we all see each other, you know, sooner than later. All right. See you guys on Twitter. Stay well, <laughs> everyone. Bye. Bye. Be safe. Bye-bye. Bye. That's a wrap for The Squadron. Please subscribe to The Squadron wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. We want to hear from you. We love hearing from you. Follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and at Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and at Wolf. And The Squadron is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. Post-production by James Asciutto. And as always, The Squadron is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. We'll see you soon.